took us a while to find the time. Thank you for your patience. Yeah, of course. Um, what have you, what have you been working on? <laughs> what's what's been taking up so much of your time? Oh, I, I'm always really yeah. a bit like this, sort okay. of writing round the clock tends to be my default mode. And I think it's anyway the way of the freelancer. And also I've been trying to do some quite ambitious sort of more art project type mm. things and at the same time keep the regular things going. Yeah. So, you know, you're just pushing and pushing. But it's okay if you don't, if you can't stand this sort of life, you know, don't get into it. And don't live in New York. And don't <laughs> live in New York. But I was like this, I'd probably be a bit like this if I was in the middle of the country. Yeah. Have, have you... I, I I I tried it. I uh, not by choice, but it just kind of happened because publishing is like that. You know, you fall out of full time <laughs> things every so often. I couldn't, I couldn't do it. I don't know. I don't know how anybody does it from from a motivational standpoint, but also from um, keeping your finances in check. Oh, being freelance. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. No, it's uh, it's it's kind of challenging, but maybe it suits my temperament. And I always wanted to keep on doing what I was doing, whether I had a, quote, job to do it or not. Mm. I wanted to do it, so I made myself a job in effect. What, uh, how much How much time does the teaching take up? Oh, um, it depends. Sometimes I teach twice a year. Sometimes I teach once a year. Um, I've been actually recently prepping for a brand new course called Dub Nation, <laughs> which is very exciting. But when you build a whole new course, you know, I suddenly uh, realize I'm trying to gauge exactly how many full-on weeks it really adds up to. It's a number of weeks to prep for a course. Yeah. You know, think, oh, I know this, I have this idea, it's going to be a doddle. But when you you know get down to it and actually sort of fine-tuning the readings and the viewings and the listenings and what are we going to discuss it it gets very elaborate you have to sort of live it in full before you do it (laughs) how 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 did that happen it's you're you're such a you're such a specialized professor in terms of subject matter how does how does one get into that that life well i think it was uh it was a very happy synchronicity that this Mm. um uh, unusual department, the Clive Davis Institute of Recorded Music at Tisch School of the Arts, yeah. New York University, <laughs> was just beginning and uh, it was spearheaded by, well, I have to be honest, I think he's brilliant. I just do. His name is J- Jason King, Professor Jason King. He sort of headhunted me and found me and opened my eyes to this possibility of teaching yeah. that I never thought about before. And uh, because at the Clive Davis Institute, you see more and more music departments cropping up everywhere. But I think the Clive Davis Institute is arguably unique. I'm not sure. I'm one heck, you know. Anyway, cut out that arguably unique because who knows. But it definitely it has an unusual emphasis on sort of balance between mm. learning how to use Ableton. Yeah. And the also technical engineering side mm-hmm, of things. Mm-hmm. And sort of stagecraft or songcraft, but also with uh, exposing students to the history of yeah. music and to the, you know, also the deeper meanings and the undercurrents that connect things. The cultural, so, sociological yeah, implications. Yeah, so I was yeah. very lucky to get in at the start of that. And I first thought of punk because it was obvious to me. I always remember how it happened. We were sitting in a cafe, you know, near Broadway in Houston and... Jason was asking me what do you think would be good to teach and I looked around and 
all the quirky things we used to see like that. Yeah. I don't know, you maybe don't remember that huge neon whale that always used to cheer me up that spouted on the corner of Broadway and Houston at a sort of very yeah. loose 24-hour garage. Then it went on to become, isn't that an Adidas or is it Nike store? Oh, yeah, yeah, right. At, yeah, anyway, at, a big uh, athletic Broadway. store. Yeah, I think it's Nike. And, you know, jolly good luck to them. <laughs> you know, they've got to be somewhere and, you know... Yeah. But I do miss that neon spouting whale. So then I thought, we need punk. You know, we need that space, that sense of anarchy and possibilities and pushing things forward, not having absolutely every corner, absolutely everything become bland and corporatized. Hmm. And, you know, uh, you know, all the little spaces for personal and individual endeavor... The way it's set up now, it tries to squeeze those spaces out, I think. Yeah. You know? So uh, people have to find a way to create those spaces, and I see that somehow they do. It's Every generation has to rise to their own challenges. I mean, the, the, punk, the, the punk conversation is, is, is an interesting one from that standpoint, from, you know, from the standpoint of um, you know, CBGBs having been a, a few blocks away and... Um, them co-opting, you know, of 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 paying, of sort of paying lip service to the history over there, while you know, America has zero respect yeah. for anything with a bit of a vibe of antiquity, even if that antiquity, let alone if that, you know, in fact, whether it's two hundred years ago or twenty years yeah. ago, there's zero respect. How much have we seen go down? And now. The whole of Houston Street mm. is virtually only cats is left of all that old brown, uh, you know, ironwork tenement that yeah. people associate with the area and crossing Delancey and so on. Cats is only there because they own the building. At some point, when they think it's the right time, that will be gone. I mean, it you know, maybe it takes a European to be that sentimental, but I've seen them sweep away so many things that were of value, like the old Palladium, which which was a sort of super pretty old venue, must have been, you know, late 19th century or something. And uh, then, of course, NYU still gives it respect in the name of the dorm, mm. which, by the way, does have a phenomenal swimming pool in it. So, <laughs> so not all is, not all is lost. It. Yeah, if only more people <laughs> could use it. But anyway, did you want to talk about the record or yeah well uh, yeah we can we will we'll get there oh, okay <laughs> do you want to do, i mean we can launch right into it if well, you like but we're uh, so uh, by yeah. chance we have ev it's extraordinary it's just by chance yeah no you can edit that well, out no no it's fine yeah. um <laughs> we can keep everything in yeah it's you know some of the ums and the the uhs will go but it'll remain largely intact. that's the beauty of the of, of podcasting is you can listen at your own leisure um i was i was curious how how it came about who, who 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 approached you who put the project together well the beautiful thing is that actually a few people had approached me hmm. bless them all about putting together a compilation of my old music and uh, when i spoke to marcus at starb gold <coughs> we'll edit that out <laughs> Uh, when I spoke with Marcus at Staub Gold, in, based in Perpign Perpignan in France, it just seemed to really make the most sense, although everybody was lovely. Um, he, wor he, he already worked with sort of Adrian Sherwood mm. 
and other um, flying lizards and 49 Americans and people like that, the sort of community that I came out of. So it, it just made sense. And I knew I would have more of a, you know, such, you know, groundswell of support that I had would be more likely to be in Europe than here because when I was doing music I was in Europe and so on and also Europe is more into that sort of music mm. so uh, generally it seemed you know wise and I found it pretty smooth so far was it something that you had been thinking? It sounds like they they had a, approached you. Yeah, they approached me. You yeah. you, you hadn't been thinking about re- revisiting. Well, a few, it like I said, a few or? people had approached me yeah. about about doing a similar thing, uh, and I had thought of it myself. But you know, I probably wouldn't have stopped to make it happen because yeah. you know, I, I, it's one of those things. Sometimes I have this attitude of if. It's, let people approach you if it's sure. the right thing and, you, and, and, and that's and you, how it turned out to be in this case because I would have never got it together and, and, you, can, and you can't assume that anyone's going to be interested in it until somebody's actually interested in it until somebody well you actually know I could have done a little what's it yourself yeah. publishing just for the record and as it were and I probably would have done that at some point just to try and pull it all together but when I would have had the time and space to really organise it who can say mm. Are, are you, are, do, you, do you make music? Yes, still? I still do yeah. make music. It's impossible to do everything at once, and sure. I sort of prioritized sort of media and, you know, now, um, you know, different sorts of writing and teaching. Um, but I still love to do it, and I was, um, you know, I still do write you know, with uh, Jill Cunniff of Luscious Jackson, mm. and also... I have a sort of part of a trio in the UK called Grasshopper, where we've done sort of house tracks, one of which was selected for uh, UK top house groover tracks of whatever year it was not long ago. Um, And, uh, you know, I, I, I just like to do it. It's just sort of something... I really like to do to sit around with my friends and do music. Yeah. And because my father was a musician... And uh, we used to, you know, sometimes have a little sing-along around the old piano, the old Joanna, on a Sunday evening. And we had this little Victor Sylvester, which was this dance orchestra in the UK. Mm -hmm. It was a little percussion set. So it was like we be jamming Shea Goldman. And I have these two older sisters. And uh, my key interest in making music probably is partly doing it with other people yeah. as opposed to doing things alone as a writer like with my dear friend Eve Blois and uh, who happens to be with us now by <laughs> very happy happenstance you can hear the, the papers um, rustling in the background as, yeah. as evidence um, um, uh, you know from when I was uh, very young I was I think I was always bossed around by my elder sisters mm-hmm. but I was the boss when it came to arranging the harmonies in the home. So I always have arranged harmonies, and I did arrange like the horn arrangements on Chantage, and harmony, um, melody and harmony, I love very dearly, as much as, you know, I love rhythm, which of course I love being, you know, as a person who grew up in reggae and dub. Did did you always see yourself as as more of a writer? Did, Did the music... 
always feel like more of kind of a, a side project? sort of thing. I, no, I never even thought of it as a side project. Mm. It was just sort of something just I sort of did, did, you know, yeah. organically or sing. And I had always written songs, actually. Now people keep asking me this, and I'm not really sure why anymore. Why did I not think of being a musician? <laughs> yeah, I felt pretty good, though, writing. Yeah. Um, uh, and uh, it just sort of, again, one of those things, the opportunity arose people wanted me to do it and then I enjoyed doing it and I had my apparently my own little individual contribution musically so that rolled on for a few years and in fact when I look at the fact that almost everything I've ever recorded is on this one record (laughs) Resolutionary songs 79 to 1982 I'd actually thought it was longer. It's also not that many tracks on there. I think it's quite a lot for just those years, 79 to 82, considering I was just operating solo. I thought, gosh, I was really quite productive. (laughs) Who knew, you know? So, yeah, those years I was more of a working musician than a writer, though I was still writing. Like when I was living in Paris, sharing a place with Eve Blouin, my partner in Chantage, I remember I wrote a big story for the New Musical Express on mm. African music in Paris, which is the scene where we sang back up. And, uh, you know, that was the scene in Paris, like the Jamaican Shabines were in London, yeah. of that sort of milieu. Um, yeah, so I always wrote a bit, and I remember doing a big TV thing on African music in Paris for Channel 4 when I was there. So I kept up doing the media-ish stuff, but a lot of my focus was on music at that time, and it was jolly good fun. Do Only you, the other day, me and yeah. Ev were sitting on her balcony, and we were listening to old lovers rock and reggae mm-hmm. and doing all the harmonies. Just what we came out of is just, I love to do it. It makes me happy. <laughs> In a sense, you know, maybe a large part of what's kept it legitimately fun for you is the fact that it that it is a side thing, that there isn't that pressure of having to do it. Oh, I haven't got to specifically deliver hits. I'm a sort of quirky underground sure. cult artist, shall we say. Or, or even, or even have terms, to, you know, if, you know, pay rent based entirely on the music that you're producing. Oh, well, you see, it's um, that's a very interesting thing that you should say that because now... It's become so much more challenging, really, no matter what. Unless you strike a chord online or something, it's so so much harder to monetize music and writing. So it's all up for grabs now. You might as well do anything (laughs) because uh, it's all very challenging. You know, they want you to go out live. They say that's where the money is. But not everybody likes... I mean, I like performing, but, I, I mean, I went out on the road a lot with bands... I don't know, you know, I suppose if the situation was right, never say never. But one can understand why people might not like going out on a big tour unless they're very well looked after and it's optimum situation. And are, you know, know, 20 20 years old. And 20 (laughs) years old. But as a marginal artist who maybe isn't the hugest draw for many, many thousands of whatever... uh, I don't know, rewind that. Maybe I haven't thought it through enough. But I'm not, you know, it's not, uh, I, I, let's just say, and this is the fact, I was always more of a backroom person musically mm. who really enjoyed the songwriting and the studio. In fact, I did this gig in London recently at Rough Trade. Did you see it? I, Online? I, I haven't seen it, now. Oh, no. please have a look. I, I, absolutely. Yeah. 
In fact, I was sponsored by Norwegian Air. I'm not joking. There were wonderful people over there, the hunky-punky <laughs> airline. Um, so, um, and that was my first ever gig <laughs> of myself, of my life. So I never was that really big performing artist, although I, you know, I quite enjoy it. Because, yeah. You know, I quite enjoy it. And um, I would say that having now been professoring in front of loads of people is not that daunting in a way like it would have been. You know, you just have to go out and compel them for a certain amount of time. Did it just not, did it not occur to you to do that? Or what was it sounds like there was a little bit of, I don't know if stage fright is the right no, word. No. Just never really occurred to me, you know. I was you were producing happy. this music and you were playing out live with people, but it never occurred to you to to go and play out live. Yeah. Well, for example, Ev is with me. Did we did one sh- uh, Ev? Do you remember we did one show at the Railway Hotel West Hampstead for a feminist organisation? I don't even think we have a photo of it. I don't even think so. No. <laughs> that was our only show and Bruce Smith of Public Image Limited played with us <laughs> so we did do that one show um, no it, it didn't really I suppose I was always busy doing yeah. things and uh, if people had I don't, I don't know it never really occurred to us you, I, 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 I felt like I maybe heard we weren't it. really a, we weren't really a band yeah. we were more a studio creation and so were the Flying Lizards and my own stuff was a very motley crew that you could have never recreated on stage. Hmm. So I suppose live and performance was never really my orientation. It's it's interesting because if you know if the act of if you really just enjoy the act of of playing, I, I, you know, I'm wondering if it's that much different doing it in in a live setting. Well. Yes, because you're sort of working very much with the people yeah. and engaging very much with the people. When you're in the studio, you're engaging with the people, the musicians and the producer. But it's a different sort of, it's a smaller troupe, isn't it? Mm. Yeah, so it's it's different. It's performance of a different kind. Do you do you look back? Do you do you regret that you didn't spend focus more time on on creating music? You never heard the PF song? That never even occurred to me. I mean, I might jokingly say, gosh, you know, now that everybody's loving it so much. Yeah. But, but not really, because what happened was, you know, I couldn't have packed much more into the time. Yeah. And then after that, we had to, I had to, I wanted to move back to London. Ever was actually going to move back to London with me. And then circumstances, like human circumstances, mm. meant she had to go back. And exactly at that moment, I started to be offered quite a lot of very interesting work in the then brand new field of independent television. Hmm. I was already in my early 30s and generally, you know, I think you'd have made the same decision if you'd have been me. So you just can't do everything at once. So... um, so that's it. I'm I'm loving the reaction it's getting, you know. Um. When she was doing those documentaries back in the days, I remember Vivian wearing those um, um, uh, clothes that we had made by the local Senegalese guy in Belleville, Paris. And uh, the material were African material. And back in the days, we're talking about the 80s, right? Nobody ever saw that it was just 
what is that? What, what is she wearing? <laughs> and now it's like everywhere. It's the big thing. It's the big fashion. Yeah. You know. Yeah. I think we're a bit too early in, <laughs> in our days. Yeah, because the chantage was very, in a way, aspects of a global fusion. Well, let's let's. Um, oh, hang on. Yeah. Uh, dans le tiroir là-bas, the, the top tiroir of the let, let, Let's talk about that a little bit. Um, when, when did the two of you start collaborating? I was invited. This, um, seems to be a big part of my mo <laughs> to have people invite me to do things. It's nice to be wanted. Uh, certainly is, and that was a big one uh, in, when I was invited by Jean-François Bizot to come and live in Paris. Yeah, who was a maverick publisher, most extraordinary man, and not not one of those creeps like you see being top publishers nowadays, but a real creative. He was my boyfriend at the time, mm-hmm. and uh, Vivian and I became friends in, in very strange circumstances. <laughs> and I think you should tell the story, <laughs> which I'm not uh, going to <laughs> save that for the book. Yeah. There's plenty, plenty of strange circumstances, anyway. No, 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 come on! No, she, you got, you got to give me a little bit. Boyfriend, boyfriend stuff, stuff okay. threw us together. Yeah. Boyfriend stuff brought us together. Mm-hmm. And then, because, in fact, our boyfriends are friends. <laughs> so that's enough about the boyfriends. <laughs> so, um, um, in Paris, there was loads of African music, yeah. like the way we had a lot of West Indian music, kind of colonial history sure. and all that. And uh, it was just so fantastic, the music at the time. Just as in London, the Jamaican music had been and was so fantastic in that era. But the early 80s, West African music, Sukkos music, (coughs) the 12 inches with a long super instrumental at the end, which were very, you know, to me were parallel to the the reggae 12 inches with a long dub at the end. And like Laundrette was like that. My my Mm. Vivian Goldman 12 inch and Chantage was also like that. Personally, I think it's a still think it's a great format because you let the music roll, you know, and you get, you know, you really get the most out of something that's, you know, really cooking and hot. (laughs) Did, Did you as a... You know, as a as a as a white Jewish girl from uh, from the UK, it, it, it nay from Northwest London. Yeah, <laughs> it, 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 even Golders Green. I, you didn't have any uh, second thoughts about trying out uh, Jamaican music, trying out African music. Why? Why would that happen? It's a it's a different it's a different color, culture. Hardly. In fact, it was mu- <laughs> much more like Jewish culture than wasp yeah. culture. <laughs> Let, uh, especially with the Jamaicans and the Rastas, because it's they're like you know people would say to me stuff like, "You call yourself a Jew, but but I you know hang on." They'd say, "You call yourself Jewish, but I'm a Jew." Mm-hmm. So it was very much you know t- twelve tribes of Israel, the Rast group that Bob belonged to. So yeah, it was a closer affinity, if anything. And with the wasps, w- were you were you teaching yourself how to with play? With all due respect to my old wasp pals, <laughs> were, were, were you playing with um, were you playing with those musicians? Were they teaching you 
the style? Well, you know, in Chantage, we got to work with some of the top Jamaican musicians. But, you know, I was around the studio a lot. And anyway, as you know, I'm from a musical family. In fact, while we're on the Jewish tip, back in the shtetl in Poland and in Austria, where I've just discovered I'm partly descended from, (laughs) you know, my lot were violinists and uh, fiddle makers. That was the family brand. So... Any way that there's music, it's got to be normal for me. Mm. And music is the key, you know, to relating to people because, you know, whether I was doing it professionally or not, I just, you know, you don't need to be doing it as a job to sort of be a musician. That's the thing that's happened since everything got codified and into an industry, you see. Mm. If you remember the olden times before the advent of widely available recorded sound, every area had a star. You know, you'd go down the pub, somebody would be really good at playing the piano, somebody in the family, wouldn't they be really good at playing the violin? Everybody would get together and sing. I had a little remnant of that in my childhood and I think that's what's missing and me and Eva were talking about that the other day there was creativity literally at your doorstep there was always somebody creative like 20 uh, feet away from where you live before you were dependent on the nipple of the media and the industry So, you know, it's like when it was, you know, um, sort of walled off into being a profession. Uh, It's really more everybody's birthright to do music. If we weren't all just sitting on the whatever digital or electronic device we're on now, we might be jamming. Right, you know, people would do that. Have a Mm sing-along, have a drink, have a sing-along in the home. Where's that gone? Anyway, with... If we see a collapse of, of <laughs> Western culture, as we know it, mate, it'll be back to that. Yep. I'd say that's what Joe Strummer was talking about all the time mm. when he did his fireside thing at Glastonbury. I'm not joking. We should all be like that. Yep. We should all be just getting together in groups and making music and having a laugh in our home or in a, or in a place. Yeah, that's really the juice of music. It shouldn't just be left to the people anointed by the industry and anyway now that half the money's taken out of it maybe we'll see a healthy devolution back to people people just making music I do think there's a folk um, yeah um, new wave that is coming towards us right now. And it doesn't People ha- are tired of being uh, singled out in music. They want to get together and sing together. Something in the air about that now. You know, that's where you get the strength. And, you know, say what you like. The virtual community is the only community that a lot of people seem to have now. I have to say, when I did this which for me was a fantastic experience working at Berkeley in Boston with the Berkeley Marley Ensemble. Mm-hmm. Um, um, uh, and I, I wrote a sort of suite around some of the songs of um, Bob Marley. And uh, I wanted to express not only my concerns, but also the students' concerns. And um, that's where they were all saying... Um, one of their biggest concerns now 
is what they see around with friends of theirs, young people, um, killing themselves mm. or threatening to kill themselves, being suicidal because of a, so, so, uh, a certain sort of isolation they feel due to their most profound relationships being conducted to a large extent without, without a hug, without the possibility of a hug. It's a self-harming children who basically do that to attract attention of their parents because there's no... It's a blur, there's no But that's not emotion. the same as the living in the virtual world, or is it? Well, it's a bit like that. It's isolation, I think. Isolation drives you but, to it. But can technology be empowering from the standpoint yeah, of obviously bringing te- us obviously, together? Obviously technology is empowering. Right now it seems to be... It had better be. Mm. Or we're really... Or we're really in, you know, deep shit. Um, but at the same time, I, I wonder to what extent it replaces the possibility of a warm hug from somebody, you know, that you're working with in a way, you know, that say you're making music with and you, you feel really close together. Ev is sure. Of course it doesn't. It doesn't, says Ev, and the people feel the lack of that, and that's why you know it's a it's buzz, it's fantastic, and like I say, you know, we've got to make the most of it because it's what we've got now. But let's not forget the the F to F, the H to H, the hug to hug. It it is interesting that you embrace the recording a little bit more though than the live performance, right? Because isn't that isn't that technology versus? A, 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 an in-person live experience? Well, it wasn't for me. Uh, you know, I didn't have my hands on the faders. Thank you very much. Leave that to the producer. No, for me, it was the you know vibing with it, communicating with. I mean, I love I loved it when I did the ha- harmony backup singing. Yeah. I loved it when we were working with people. You know, Adrian Sherwood, Prince Farai with Neno and and Ali. When you were in the studio back in those days, it was almost like being on stage. It was this kind of uh, spontaneity uh, that uh, is hardly existing right now. And this is what we miss. So well, I'm, I'm sure it is, though, for some people. Don't forget. I'm sure it is for some people. The industry in general. It's just so institutionalized and codified for a lot of people. But then you get a lot of people doing the small spontaneous stuff like the studio I went to in somewhere in furthest Brooklyn. I wish, I wish, to, hear them, I wish to hear them more. Yeah, there, there, uh, there, there is more. You know, I, I know there is more. But it was easier then. Like, these people yeah. had to go and get everything from the city because their last place was closed down. Milk Studios. Mm. I'll just send you the right one. Um, so how, how, how do you make how do you make that transition from background music from playing with other people to actually going into the studio and recording your own? You asked me all these questions. I never thought I wasn't. <laughs> I was all stuff this I was just doing. With, I, yeah, I mean, uh, it was. All, I never thought of it like that. I wasn't yeah. trying to make that. It all just. It was all stuff I was doing with my friends, and yeah. I had some ideas, and some friends back me. You know, that was it. <laughs> and in those days it was very f- you would just get up and do things yeah. DIY you know with your friends you won't you know these days people are s- these days I might not have done it because I'm not so good at sitting alone fiddling on the Apple Mac I just probably yeah. wouldn't bother when, when, when we did Chantage we picked up the, the violins from the um, um, 
where was it? It was a Romanian restaurant. And the guys, you know, Bubbles and his uh, steel drum guys mm. from the neighborhood. It was just like that. Yeah. It was guys from the neighborhood who came to do something on the record. A job and we paid them. Off they went. And um, we found them, you know, we went. Uh, I was living in Ladbroke Grove with a, where the carnival happened. And they had a street there that's now sort of completely upified, uh, All Saints Road. And then it was the front line and uh, where you could get a lot of what you needed. And what, what we needed up there was a steel pan player. So we went to sort of the mangrove and the uh, reggae resistance record shop or just asked people on the corner, who do you think is the top steel pan player around here? And we had the mangrove steel pan band that was a very big band many years at Carnival, you know, the big thing. And uh, Bubbles was the arranger of... Um, all the girls were in love with Bubbles. <laughs> Bubbles with this gorgeous Rasta guy with those long, wavy dreadlocks. And they were transfixed by him. And then he would start few uh, notes on his uh, steel room and that was it. <laughs> he was like a Bubbles the man! <laughs> Where are they now? We uh, should find find bubbles. How? <coughs> yeah, yeah. I, 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 oh, <coughs> when you know when I, uh, when people are talking about DIY about punk, a lot of it is that that kind of that empowerment. You know that that um, that 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 the music made it clear that that anybody could do it that it lowered the the barrier of entry but it sounds it sounds like you didn't need that it sounds like it sounds like you didn't need but you know i'd been working yeah. in music a long time many years before i recorded i mean the going and doing backup when i said it was just to laugh um it was fun it was like a fun afternoon out with your girlfriends so um i think maybe he gave us some money or maybe he'd produce something for us in exchange adrian sherwood um um but when it came time to do music and make a sound i, I knew what to do because i had it in my head and then uh first it was the flying lizards so he discovered i had this aptitude for writing to track Mm. So, for example, Viv Albertine, the guitar player from the Slits, and sure. David Toop both play on my Flying Lizards tracks. But I had no idea until I went to get the info from the credits and David Cunningham from the Lizards had to go and dig them back from an ancient file, you know, to see who was playing on what huh. track. Because he had the tracks and then he gave them to me to write to. But I did that for a few people, as you know. I did that for Massive Attack. I did that for Cold Cut. I did that for Ruichi Sakamoto, which in a way is, to me, about as big as you can get, yeah. in a way. And, um, and um, so I, ha I, you know, I had that facility, and David discovered that. And so I did those couple of things with him, with me singing, because he knew I could sing. So, um, but then the next thing I did, the Vivian Goldman record with Laundrette and Private Armies and PA Dub on it, that was like my record. So that was my first time of doing my sound. Mm. 
I knew exactly what I wanted, you know. It was what I heard in my head. So, and then the next thing I did was Chantage, where uh, we did a radio show together on Radio Nova that was then a pirate, now one of the biggest radio stations in France. What was it called, It was called Chéri Noir, and Chéri Noir means um, black sherry. <laughs> um, and it's after an edition of a black and yellow book that was specialized in a dark mo- uh, roman, Serie Noire. Yeah. Serie Noire. You mean the series was called Serie Noire? Yes. So, anyway, so a, a, a <laughs> series of black thrillers. music from uh, pygmies to uh, rhythm and blues uh, and jazz and everything. Absolutely everything. It's a big range. <laughs> yes. But at the time, nobody <laughs> had the records but me. So, uh, the, at the beginning, they didn't really understand what it was about because black music, African music, for example, was totally unknown. Uh, except from some specialized uh, radio station like uh, Tropic FM that was very big but they were not searching researching the music anyway so this became very successful and then Vivian came and we started doing uh, shows together on radio (laughs) and then it became natural because I was in full musician mode at that time having just done Laundrette so I was going to go and do something. And so I was like, come on. Yeah, and we were sharing a flat. So just like me and my sisters at home, we were naturally just singing, harmonizing, making things up, just around the house, just what you do. So uh, then we were sort of, we, we, we knew people at the record company who liked what we were doing. And uh, they put out that 12-inch chantage. It was we all knew each other it was like family really mm. we just made some things a friend of yours does the uh, you know the, the design and um, etc etc so we we did the record yeah we did it so sounds like you didn't have any particular musical ambitions at the time it was just oh, um, you, were, you were doing music before no 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 I'm, I always have been a professional musician than me. I always have been uh uh, involved in music, doing backing vocals mm. and things like that, and trying to write songs. But um, uh, it's not something I think of a, having a career particularly. I just do it for free because I love it. And uh, if something blossoms, wonderful. If not, it blossoms anyway. <laughs> when when the two of you, because you live reasonably close to each other now, you're both in the same borough. How, when the two of you spend time together, um, does it naturally become musical? Do you do you, you end up? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> just like that. I mean, she's in, she was into music. I was into music, yeah. so it just happened. You know. But it but it to to this day, mm-hmm. it's still a part yeah. of your relationship. Yeah. yeah. In fact, uh, just at the weekend, we were sitting on her balcony in the sun and we were listening to some old reggae and lovers rock. In fact, I think I told you. Mm -hmm. And uh, we just started harmonizing. We had the most fun time for quite a few songs. Yeah. Is is there a way to... Do do you work that into the curriculum at all? I mean, is that part of 
actually encouraging people to make music on top of just sort of intellectualizing and you mean at nyu when i teach at nyu or sometimes i teach in other places like berkeley and boston and rutgers um in new jersey uh and that's not really my department they Mm. go and they taught their music elsewhere but i think that just being me as a teacher yeah probably helps them see that it's possible to work in more than one medium at, at what point did you start becoming a, a music historian as as you are now well you know that's where i began of course as i often tell the students and especially when i was teaching music journalism at rutgers thing is, when I started in the 70s, there was a lot less to absorb. <laughs> Rock had only started in the 50s. Yeah. We weren't really going back to the big band and swing. And uh, so, you know, I only had two decades of music to be an expert on. So there's a lot more now. But there was a, you know, it was a fantastic thing for a, a, a writer to get that start in the rock press in a totally different way than you would now because you really got paid. Not much, obviously, but, you know, you didn't need much. You got into gigs for free. And and, uh, now I'm not sure where that happens. So you have to do a lot of writing, being an intern, being exploited. I loathe the intern system. So how can you really develop as a writer? It's it's tougher, I think. So I think I was very lucky to yeah. come up right when I did to catch that maverick, freewheeling spirit of the rock press. It's the, you know, you, if I, I write about technology now, that's my main job, and it wasn't something that I sought out. I I wanted to be a writer. I wanted to. I, I moved. I had an internship at Spin. I had a, one of those un, unpaid internships at Spin Magazine that brought me out to New York. In the first place, I loathe the intern system. I think it should be abolished, and I would gla- I would gladly join yeah. a campaign. <laughs> and actually, uh, my associate or colleague Farai Shadaya had an anti-intern campaign. So it keeps it just for the elite, because yeah. unless you're from a privileged, wealthy family, yeah, it's just part of the new slavery. And I think you should do a whole show about that. <laughs> Fuck the intern system. It was, you know, I, anyway, I, was saying, I was saying that at the time, you know, it was, it was the only way that I saw into that upper echelon. Of course, um, I was doing plenty of free music writing at the time. Tragic. Um, My heart bleeds for you. But because it, really, it should be a job that you can do and try and grow and develop in it. Well, yeah, I mean, not it's, that you have to spend all your time studying to be a vet or a brain surgeon or an airline pilot or whatever it is, be it driving a garbage truck, whatever it is, you you have to do, you know, because you can't work on your writing because it's so hard to get paid nowadays. It's, I mean, it's it's in hard. The music journalism. Yeah, I mean, it's it's very it's it parallels being a musician very closely it's it's hard i mean all these places are closing it's hard for them to actually even make money through the writing process anyway so i I don't i wonder i wonder what's going to happen they'll you know uh they'll always have to as jason king's always assuring me they'll always have to be a music journalism yeah because people do need the filter because people do still love music despite all the competition from the many media that didn't exist when rock and pop and reggae and afrobeat were beginning so, 
yeah, there will still be some, but they, I suppose, will have to be uh, the most talented and the most committed. Ba-boom! <laughs> I, yeah, I, you know, and I, 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 have, I have this conversation with people a lot around technology. Around, you know, we, we seem to always view technology as moving toward a certain thing, as moving toward the next step, and we're trying to figure out what the next step is. But it seems that oh. at this point that everything is just going to be transitional forever. Let me ask you something. Hmm. Why do we need all this more technology of instant ease of whatever? I'm not, I'm not really sure. It's Devel- for developments in the medical field, sure. yes, I'm sure. But it seems often that for everything that we gain, we also lose. Yeah. And uh, it's created all this unemployment because now there's going to be so few people. Again, only the elite will be really equipped to handle the jobs with the big money, you know. There'll be some basic service jobs and so on. But you know what I'm talking mm-hmm. about. It's It all adds up to more... Erosion of the middle class, erosion of the lower middle class, division, you know, more 1% versus the rest of us. Well, so, you know, because people don't look at society holistically and, and, uh, and, and think of the social consequences of this so-called rush to progress. What I will say, though, I think that you, the career that you've carved out for yourself is a pretty good example of, I think, what a lot of people are moving toward where... Um, we're no longer society no longer operates with people mm. necessarily staying in the same job forever that exactly. you have to be transitional anyway and you Thank you've you. but you've been you've been doing that you know well before my whole and life yeah. I've done that my whole life actually do you do you get bored easily yeah I do get bored easily I'm quite a restless spirit mm-hmm. and um, I suppose to be honest, to be really honest, I don't suffer fools that gladly. I do my best. Um, I don't know. Also, I was trying to do a lot of things at once Yeah. in a way that no regular job would let you do. I very much enjoyed my deep associations with a few companies, though, but often from slightly, you know, outside as a sort of associate, like I was very involved with rough trade. I have very mm-hmm. happy memories of that business growing. And I did for a while have my own television production company with a partner, Spellbound, with uh, Mick Sawyer in Brighton. And we, Spellbound, yeah, when I stopped doing music or stopped doing music as an everyday thing, uh, I went gung-ho into into this uh, brave new world of independent television as it then was and uh, my, some of the work I did then I did some pretty good work then I think and I suppose the most celebrated or known thing I did was that I co-produced directed with my then partner Mick Sawyer a video for Eric B and Rakim mm. I Ain't No Joke of course. Uh, that was shown at the Museum of the Moving Image yeah. and gets a lot of props generally but you can see in it, you can see in it that, you know, I come out of punk and that we were documentarians because that's what we literally did. Oh, hello. Uh, we didn't know each other at all. We weren't really from a hip-hop media. He was from Brighton. I was from West London. And um, uh, we just approached it really like musical documentarians. And we said, where do you hang out? 
very simple, basic question. People turn out to love that video because it was so free and easy in those yeah. days. They were like, oh, we like going shopping up at Dapper Dan's in Harlem. So I'm like, okay. And I don't think we got any clearances. Maybe we just went at a funny time of day. We pulled up in the car. There wasn't mm-hmm. these big parking issues. We set up the uh, the decks in front of the shop. And, you know, um, um, Eric B. hits the wheels of steel. The people gather. We're in and out. They do the song twice over. And off we go to join Flavor Flav in the playground. That was the first time he'd ever been filmed because... Uh, Eric B and Rakim, of course, enormously powerful. Yeah. But they, they were, they, they were, they, they didn't have a lot of movement, you know, literal movement, like filling the screen with, in that sense. That, you know, Rakim, of course, had a phenomenal presence, but in, in, you know, in that lively way. And I saw there was one live wire sitting on the bleachers <laughs> at the project playgrounds, which is where they said, oh, this is where we hang out. So we're yeah. okay, we'll shoot here. So everybody's there in their Kangles and their um, hip-hop track, track suits, suits yeah. and their boom boxes and so on. And there's one little fella in the <laughs> stands and he's bopping away and he's grooving and, and that turned out to be Flavor Flavor. I just said, oh, you, you know. Do you mind awfully? Would you mind dancing for the for the video? And they were all mates. And he gave this incredible dynamite dancing that we were able to cut all the way through and give it that little jump that it needed, you know. And uh, ask him; he'll tell you. That was that was his first time being filmed. I had no idea who he was. Yeah. Uh, but his charisma. Yeah. Already evident. <laughs> He's uh, once a hype man, always a hype man. Exactly. Right? Yeah. It's it's interesting though. I mean, you know, I, I, certainly what you're bringing to a project like that is that you don't have the foreknowledge of how it works of the uh, of the ins and outs of of shooting a documentary, and because of that, you're you've yeah, opened up a certain amount of freedom because you don't have to go through all of the uh, well-defined processes. Do you mean if I was um, if you had been if I'd been more an American, more coming up in hip hop, I might have approached it differently. If you had been if you had been making if you had gone to film school, if you had been making documentaries, yeah, no, I never did any of that. But but it's I never went. It's sort of similar to your approach to music, where yeah, um, it frees you up not having that. Let's be honest. (laughs) I really am a punk. I was very lucky <laughs> that I coincided with punk. Yeah. I had a pretty successful career for some years in telly. Never trained for that, yeah. for good or ill. I made some mistakes there too. That if I'd have come up through regular channels, I wouldn't have done. What I was thrown yeah. out. But crea- that was more, to be honest, on the business side. But creatively, I think the stuff still stands. And. Um, uh, so we never tra- I never trained for that. What's that we, the royal we? <laughs> and journalism, one never trained for that in those days. You just started doing things. Music, never trained for that. Yeah. Production, never trained for that. But people like the big DJ, Joe Clausel was commending Chantage, where actually me and Ev did the final mix. He was commending it, saying how good it sounded for a really complex track. So, yeah. But were, were, were you able to take that same approach when it 
came to academia. Yes, you know, it's really absolutely. <laughs> they just sort of let you do your That's thing. That's why they call me the punk professor. <laughs> well, I'm the punk professor because that name arose because I initiated the punk course. Yeah. But I always liked it because I felt as a professor I truly was a punk in that I'd done a lot of broadcasting and so on and ergo sort of lecturing and public speaking. But I had never literally uh, shepherded a body of students through a subject that may be completely unfamiliar to them and leaving yeah. them experts. I mean, seven weeks later, <laughs> and, you know, um, I'd ne- no, I'd never done like that. But it was just, a, uh, to me, you know, I, 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 it literally is all connected by rhythm. It, it, that's just how it works. You have the information, whatever it is, whether it's visual or historical, and you organize it in a rhythmic way that the end user or student or listener or viewer yeah. can receive. And, the, you know, the, it, it's about how you deliver it, how you project it, how you pace it. It's the rhythm. Do, do you assume... And, of course, you have to know what you want to say. Like I said to you, yeah. even when I started doing music, I just knew the sound I wanted because I just knew it. So I guess that is the artist-type vibe because you have a sense of what you want to do or you wouldn't bother. You know, with all this stuff, I probably wouldn't bother yeah. if, I, if I didn't hear it in my head or want to get it down on paper. But how, how does that... What, what, what does that look like or what does that sound like to you versus, you know, I, I, when you talk about the way you want a record to sound mm. i mean that's the pretty clear it's pretty literal that there's a certain sound i don't yeah. how does that play out over the course of a semester over well the course there's of information a, you want to convey okay. there, and are be- there are beats that you want to hit yeah beats you want to hit there's a it really is a, a journey of learning that you want to travel with them ideally as the leader but you know maybe that's being very matriarchal of me because you know one does learn you know, there's no doubt that you know one learns from the students, like the old cliche. Um, and the students change every year, and the courses change. What well, even when you're teaching the same course, yeah. Every time I teach it, I change it, reflecting the current times. And then you find that the students have a different sort of, you know, a, a different group than they were the previous sure. time because times are changing and people are responding to the times. I've seen students get quite a lot more socially aware and militant in the the past few years yeah. <laughs> do, do you and, and I, I it's interesting yeah. the sort of courses I teach we're able to discuss those things because those are the sort of things that I'm attracted to teaching things that are a springboard for all sorts of ideas that are expressed through rhythm. Now I'm about to teach this new Dub Nation course and there's this new challenge in teaching and thinking that I've never had to face before in the low these many years. (coughs) Which is, you know, I've worked with all these great artists and musicians, you know, your Bob Marley, Fela Kuti, uh so many earth wind and fire mm-hmm. um uh, uh, the sex pistols people the slitzy people all sorts um and a lot of it and been an artist myself ongoing um has been to do with the lyrics you see the lyrics have had a lot to do with the import of yeah. the music however 
now that I'm coming to teach this course, Dub Nation, we're having to see what is the motivating force other than just literal the old get down of non verbal music music without lyrics because a lot of them have been you know quite revolutionary in creating new communities and yet doing it without words so what's in a rhythm this is one of the challenges of the course I can tell you that now before I've even started teaching it I don't know what you're saying to me. I, I don't think we can talk anymore. We've done so much. Okay. We use all this. Yeah, I, I will. I, do you listen to podcasts ever? No, I just write all the time. Well, I listen very rarely to podcasts. Long, long form conversations are. How long have we speak spoken? Um, we're about at forty five, so we can. Really? Yeah. What is your favorite flower? What is your favorite? <laughs> <laughs> right. I think we've done really well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, Why, are you disappointed? No, I just I, can I ask you one more one more question? Oh sure. Okay. Are we yeah, carry yeah. on for another yeah, yeah. if you want? Okay. Yeah. No. Um, I mean it's it's related to that, and, I, and I'm I'm just wondering. Maybe you have something else you want to say. She wants to talk about flowers. We're thinking of getting some food now. <laughs> carry on. Okay. Uh, now that you've been doing this for a while, now that you've got what, the professoring, uh, yeah, the professoring, or the musicing, the 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 the, the music professoring, um, <laughs> you know, now that uh, obviously, as you said, they they change from quarter to quarter, semester to semester. But um, I'm really curious what a 18 or 19 or 20 year old knows about that going into it. I mean, what what kind of foreknowledge do you assume, or do you just start right at the beginning? I do. <laughs> That's He's important. He's speaking about the professoring. Okay. So, in the in the question sujet de NYU. So, um, when you start a new course, teaching a new course with a new class, yeah. a new intake of students, you can never tell. So that is part of the establishing the foundation of the community of the course, of the class, you know. Um, we don't always have a, a lot of time to do it, and I'm actually trying to embed it more deeply um, with the students to a certain extent, let's not exaggerate, forming a community mm. around the class, you know. Of course, some lasting friendships are made, etc. But it's really more sort of uh, intellectual, cultural, ac- you know, academic, with a bit of a human vibe, social group that you form with these small classes. And you know, it's really like we were saying before um, about the virtual community, which is what most people have to rely sure. on nowadays, versus having at least some modicum of human contact with other people you're creating with especially in music Um, because you feed off each other in such a way when you're just getting the heat off the other person sort of thing so now there's a big move to mass scale long distance learning Uh where you know some clever professors are getting their agenda online and signing people up and so on I have to say that the somewhat 
arm and a leg NYU experience is the reverse of that because it's very intimate and it's very live and that sort of thing is so luxurious nowadays because people don't get that very yep. much you know it's sort of quality time it's quite intense and you know people aren't allowed in like if you wanted to go can I drop in on your groovy new course sorry mate <laughs> it's not on we're not having it no it's not allowed no matter how groovy the person may be unless they were actually going to get involved and yeah. talk and be a presence useful to the class and we don't really film it it's live hmm. so that's very precious it was very it's very different at some other universities where sometimes I talk very big big classes and that's what I think if I was going to have stage fright maybe I wouldn't now because I got so used to yeah. having to you know people uh, really the room is as big as a pretty big hall like Webster Hall or something you've got to reach that person no no you're not going to sleep in the yep. back there yep. no 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 so yeah so the teaching you see how, now how it fits in with making a documentary or writing a story well Yes, but but also at the same you know at the same time I'm wondering you know you're you're in the process right now of making a syllabus or or outlining brand new syllabus a brand new syllabus and you said it's a, a multi week process so um, you know that's a lot of planning is, that goes into it, it. It is for me. It is, but and but. I think I know it all. But guess what? When you come to shape it up and get all the fine detail and. You know, people can only absorb so much each week, and sometimes you get the same. Do you really want to know about this for your well, podcast? I think. Yeah, I, I, I'm interested. From, the minutia of the. I love minutia. <laughs> I, I'm interested from the from from the standpoint of, um, you know, you you have this grandiose plan of 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 the shape it's going to take, but <laughs> how much when when you when you get to that first class when you when you talk to them, how much do you have to tear it down? Um, well, you know, there is that old thing of going out on stage with every word written and then throwing it away and, yeah. and riffing. But to be honest, I don't like to do that. Yeah, I like to be. I like to do that if I'm going to do that on the foundation of knowing. Sometimes I break it down to the second. But you, yeah, yeah. that's how I, I'm. A, I do. I approach it still like. But, a but you do. But you do have to adapt in that. You know, you don't. Again, you don't know where they're starting from. Um, but you allow space for that. Yeah. I am, in fact, supposed to be doing another show. Maybe I'll focus in on that soon. I had said September, but obviously I've missed that deadline. At this point, maybe I should say the spring. Hopefully they'll still keep a slot for me at Rough Trade New York. Yeah. Following the success of the Rough Trade London, <laughs> your Rough Trade East show, which really was lovely and people can go and see it on the Rough Trade site and also on NPR ran it uh, and also Pitchfork ran it various people ran it uh, um, because I did this show and as it was actually my first ever show as me yeah. uh, I decided to make it a show of collective strength and express my solidarity and my roots by coming up with the girls, you know, just like what I used to do, backup singing, which is where I began, singing with my girlfriends. And uh, so I called on some lovely girlfriends, and they came through. And so, you know, I always liked those hip-hop shows. 
where there's like loads of blokes sure. milling around the stage yeah, yeah, yeah. for no particular reason, yeah. just yeah, posse in effect. Yeah, we've got a community, we've got a crew. This, this you know. is like your Wu Tang clan. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's my. my <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Sometimes they say something into the mic. Sometimes they just look moody or happy. And they're just dressed like they rolled in off the street. Yeah, and you know. <laughs> And they're a crew, so I yeah. felt, well, after all these years, finally I'm having my first show. I don't have a band, but I've got my posse. Mm. And uh, so I sang with Gina from the Raincoats and um, uh, Andrea Oliver, who used to sing with our other sister, Nena Cherry, in Rip Rig and Panic, a fantastic post-punk band that overlapped with the pop group. And uh, the very wonderful... Miss Holly Cook, who keeps the lovers' rock vibe alive. She's a fantastic artist, you know, young artist now. You should know her if you don't. And um, also Helen Helen McCookery Book, who's another professor player type, as in player of instruments, as opposed to player with a wide social sway, though doubtless she is that too. Mm -hmm. Anyway, so it wasn't I and I alone although it was my gig and they were my backing vocalists and we had some definite amusing things I mean try and watch it everybody go and watch it <laughs> online it was it was very special and it literally not many things on this planet are unique however that was a unique musical event having said that as you rightly pointed out I should be thinking of doing another gig another unique another musical unique event. event and I already know yeah. sort of what I want to do although I'd have to explore it more but thing is just like preparing an NYU syllabus yeah. when you do something new and you have to do it to a standard there comes a point where you have to just focus on that to an extent and just you know organize it like I know musicians that, I mean this one I would maybe not like to do to backing tracks you know, maybe I would do something else and do at least some things live. Songs. Maybe some new songs. You, you've been thinking about this. Yes, I have been contemplating it because my initial thrust when I thought of doing live, my first thought was to collaborate, knowing that Ev wasn't, wasn't up for it. <laughs> uh, my first thought was to collaborate with uh, my main musical partner. I think I mentioned to you that I am in this trio, or a loose collective that, as far as I know, is mainly a trio of me, <laughs> the producer Alex Marsh, and the fantastic um, arranger, singer guitar player like incredibly useful musical fellow and my good friend Andy Kane and Andy Kane is very special to me he's a person who uh, really in a way keeps me keeps the music make the making of music alive for me yeah. because he's always doing music and we're so natural doing music together unlike Ev who went a documentary award-winning documentarian she's reading the newspaper yeah, right who's now, now reading the newspaper yeah. <laughs> um, she's somewhat been there done that yeah. with her musical career um uh but uh, you know anytime me and andy sit down it's well it's a bit like me and ev when we just get together but yeah. that's just fun we'll sing you know so anytime me and andy together 
he'll play the guitar, we'll sing, and then it will build up into something because he's a professional. So he thinks, oh, let's build it up into something and mm -hmm. let's lay it down and do. So, um, and Andy is such a sort of untapped resource, mm -hmm. to be honest, in all these years working with all these incredible people. I just think Andy Kane is super talented. He has a voice that you just always want to listen to. He's unbelievable. He He's really unbelievable. is. Say it. Andy Kane. <laughs> Andy Kane is amazing and unbelievable. And there should be whole shows about Andy Kane. However, Andy Kane has chosen to be a bit of a backroom boy, which is something I understand. He just likes making music. Yeah. He was not necessarily up into trotting around, touring. You know, it can get exhausting. It can get lonely. You see new places. You're with, if you're not with a band, you know, you're with strangers every night. Some are great. You know, so then, you know what I mean? Yeah. He's got kids. He loved sure. it, you know, loves his wife. Yeah. He, he just preferred to do his thing be a real musician like we were discussing earlier and just make music in the studio or whatever so that's my musical main man Andy although I have lots of other wonderful partners like um, Sinreich and, and, and Dunya Best uh, of Dubistry they're people I plan to record with and in fact uh, had I recorded something when I was thinking of it at some point not that long ago Donato Coleman was going to produce it for me so yeah I have ideas I have things bubbling <laughs> and uh, I'm just you know hoping to sort of stream it all smoothly and in an inevitable way we live in a capitalist society you know if there is a yeah. groundswell of interest in me doing things it does make it more likely that those things will happen but I have faith in you that so again in, in a timely manner uh, but and, and getting back to the musical thing that, that, that you could talk around something for a long time and at some point the stars will align and it will come to fruition I do have that Zen approach now and yeah. you have to be above all tenacious now that I've spent low these many years initially working with Bob Marley sometimes even singing with Bob Marley thinking about Bob Marley, writing about Bob Marley, teaching about Bob Marley, meditating on Bob Marley, giving thanks for Bob Marley, who wound up kind of dominating a lot of my professional and sort of artistic and thought output for my life, having had this early uh, connection with him. So... Um, after really examining the canon of songs, at some point, I started to home in on this line, you've got to take just one step more from Talking Blues. Uh, I've, I've, I've got to take uh, just a one step more. That's what Bob says. Yes, that's you've just you with as an artist, as whatever you are, as a human, but you've got to keep on taking that one step more if you've got the faith in it, and you know that if you don't, you know, my dear friend R.I.P. Mocky Cherry. Sometimes, especially when I was writing my book, the Book of Exodus. Oh my goodness, was that ever challenging? Because at some point early on, I realised I was started to do the sums. I started to look at the ratio of the time it took me to think something, research something, write something, polish something, get it to a form. started to think of all I had to say in this book, and I realized I would never go out again. 
not until the book was finished. And that is what happened. And it was sometimes brutal, so brutal, you know. And then maybe I would be invited to something, something where there would be friends and laughter. And I would phone Mocky. I would say, Mocky, can I go? I've got to finish this chapter. And she would say, Vivian, if you leave your work, nothing happens. It doesn't happen. The the, the irony of writing Exodus and not being able to leave the That's classic. <laughs> Nicely observed. <laughs> yeah, that's it. So that's why writers so often become recluses. And I read about these people, oh, yeah. say, Jay McKinney, maybe gets up at uh, one o'clock in the afternoon and dashes off 5,000 words by four and then he's off on a night of revelry or that's how they used to project it back in the 80s, you know. No, to me, when you're writing, it's a world, you're building up the characters, you're building up the rhythm, you're building up the narrative. It's, yeah, it's very hard to leave it. Yeah. You need to be in a position where you can stay with it and stoke it and nurse it along. So, you know, it's like... it's. It's how it works. It's the balance of actually so, you know, if living I, life. And e- even though I'm a pretty fast worker and know what I want, so say if I decided or if it happened that I was going to do shows, for example, right? Hypothetically. You need X amount of time yeah. to work out, well, actually, I could probably put it together quite fast if I had the musicians, but you still you need time to rehearse. But I could probably pull it together quite fast with the occasional rows. I that suspect that you probably could. I mean, yeah. you you know the people and yeah, I know the people. I know what I want. Yeah, so, yeah, probably is something that I could do. But right now, sure, I'm putting together the syllabus, syllabus for NYU, and then I got this. Then hopefully, whatever, whatever, yeah. we'll see. You know, maybe it'll happen. Some people reached out to me actually for it, but it didn't quite gel. So. Because, again, like people reaching out to me for the record, I can't get it together. People have to want me to do it. I'm, you know, if they want me to do it, I'll make it happen and enjoy it. Uh, we'll have a good time. I mean, it, it sounds like, the, you know, the, the fact that by necessity you've had, you've done so many different things, um, that's ne- helped by keep necessity. you... Yeah, uh, by necessity. Yeah. You know, or... By, or, or by that, riding the rhythm of life. Yeah. I've done so many different things by the necessity of continuing to exist. Exactly. Of having... Yes. Of survival. <laughs> um, and survival and... But that's what's kept in it entertaining every way. for you. And that's, huh? what's, that's what's kept it entertaining and that's what's kept it yeah. enjoyable. Is that... Uh, yes. Also, you know, uh, things change in the course of society. You yeah. know, like we've noticed recently, things changing in the world of journalism. That make it arguably a more challenging choice and more for the absolutely uh, committed to that path. That's not even to mention the fact that journalists in uh, real challenging zones are being killed at a previously unknown rate. So it's become a higher risk than ever before, worse paid than ever before enterprise. But somebody's got to do it and people will do it and, uh, you know, I can't knock the life of a journalist because it's been really great for me. <laughs> and I hope to continue to do some, you know, while I'm able to wield a word processor. There you go. That was Vivian Goldman. Not, not really sure where to start with that one. Just an utterly fascinating conversation with her. Went to her apartment. 
apartment. Um, we, we had been trying to set that up for a few months and was finally able to do that. Um, that's actually from a little while ago now. And, and the reason I finally was able to get her to, to sit down and, and commit to the conversation is I was uh, about to travel for uh, about a month for work. Uh, she was getting set up for the school year. She's, you know, as we uh, spoke about quite a bit, a uh, professor over at NYU. So she was kind of getting her curriculum together and, and working all on uh, a lot of other stuff all at the same time. Um, but uh, glad we finally got a chance to do that. And uh, glad I did it on, on the night that I did it because uh, Eve, her former bandmate from uh, Chantage, was there as well, uh, was uh, contributing to the conversation. So that, that was the, the third voice that you heard during that interview every so often. Uh, Vivian's relatively new album, well, okay, <laughs> the album, the, the, the re-release is relatively new. Uh, it's uh, Resolutionary. It's a, a compilation of uh, a lot of the singles that she had put out uh, between the years of 1979 and 1982. Really, really wonderful, worth checking out. Uh, highly recommend it if you're um, into a lot of that uh, you know, late, late 70s uh, punk rock and um, kind of the, the British reggae and, and dub of the time. Um, thank you so much to her for taking the time to do that. That conversation was done in like three or four parts because we would uh, we would talk and then it would come to sort of a natural ending and then I would turn off the tape recorder and then we would start talking about something and then she would uh, suggest that I turn it back on. So I felt a little bit joy- disjointed. Uh, that's the reason why. Uh, thank you so much to her. Thanks to Brian, as always, for editing the show together and for uh, for piecing that together because I know it was probably uh, a very a very difficult one to, to put together and make cohesive just because it was in uh, so many different parts uh, thanks to you guys as as always for listening to the program if you liked what you heard please consider supporting us over on Patreon or if you don't have any money to toss our way uh, rate us on iTunes or Google Play or wherever it is that you get your podcasts uh, if you've got any feedback it's rwellcast at gmail.com follow us on Tumblr that's rwellcast.tumblr.com that is the first best place to get all of your RIYL related information uh, like us on Facebook I think that's about all I got for this week so thank you so much and uh, stick around because we will be back just about this time next week with another episode of RIYL.